Some of you may have read Evelyn Waugh's novel, Bride's Head Revisited. I haven't myself. It's on my perennial list of things to read. But I have seen the 10 and a half hour miniseries. It's a great English period piece, kind of like a Catholic version of Downton Abbey. There's one very interesting scene in which the Lord Marchmain, a nominal Catholic who converted in order to marry into the wealthy family, is on his deathbed. One of his more devout daughters calls in a Catholic priest to give him last rites. However, he rebuffs the priest and says that he does not believe in the sacraments. But Lord Marchmain continues to deteriorate, and his adult children discuss whether they should call the priest back. This conversation unsettles Charles, a non-Catholic family friend who is privy to the conversation of his children. And he asks whether a Catholic who does not receive last rites will still go to heaven. And somebody tells him to the effect, yes, probably. Then he asks if a person who does not have faith, but is given last rites anyway, for example, he is not conscious so he can't refuse them, will he then go to heaven? And one of the Catholics responds to the effect, well, maybe. And so trying to resolve his confusion, somebody tells Charles that all he has to do in order to be saved, a person has to, be, to do and to be saved, is have the correct interior disposition. But then Charles asks, what difference do the priest and the anointing oils make anyway if it's all about interior disposition? It's a great scene because in its confusion, it matches many of the conversations I've heard about people or with people who have doubts about the power of the sacraments. The person who is skeptical is trying to isolate the issue, trying to reduce the question to one of precise causation in the manner of a scientist or a logician. What exactly does a sacrament do? What gives power to a sacrament? The will of God? The priest administering the sacrament? The water or the bread or the wine or the oil? Or the faith of the recipient? And unfortunately for people who have this skeptical attitude, even the best answer is going to be unsatisfying. Because when we are dealing with the sacraments, as well as with many other aspects of our faith, you cannot speak as if one force is the driving cause of all that is good and that is sought and achieved. In the Catholic understanding, there are always multiple overlapping vectors of human effort and divine grace mediated by the form and matter of the sacraments in bringing about the raised tantum, the effect of the sacrament. And while we can never fully understand the mystery of the sacraments, we can make some sense of why God chooses this approach, this sacramental approach, as the primary means to transmit his love to us. It's because by making the work of the sacraments depend, in part, on human effort, God is showing us the dignity of his creation. Both in the material things with which he has colored the world, as well as the dignity of the human intellect and will which he created and which is able to understand and cooperate with God.
We see this interconnection of human and divine effort expressed beautifully in the offertory, the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist. At Sunday Mass, you can't hear the priest say it out loud because we have an offertory hymn, but at daily Mass, you can hear it. He holds up the bread. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have this bread to offer, which earth has given and human hands have made. It will become for us the bread of life. And the wine. Through your goodness, we have this wine to offer. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands, it will become our spiritual drink. This participation of men and women with the divine will is the church. That's what the church exists for. Yet many Christians are frustrated sometimes that the sacred scriptures are not more clear, that they do not spell out in minute detail what we are to believe and how we are to understand our faith. So much so that throughout the centuries, the faith has had to be clarified by councils and by creeds and rationalized by the writings of saints and doctors and popes. But this just shows us that God's will for us is that we be made active participants in the work of faith, which is theology and prayer. This grappling and struggling with mystery and ambiguity. We are drawn into this intimacy with God by his engagement of our minds and our hearts. And this even explains why Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables as we see in today's gospel. Jesus is saying the same principle of participation applies even in what he says. By the parables, Jesus is drawing the crowd into the mystery of faith by inviting a deeper contemplation, a journey of discovery rather than simple revelation. In the first parable, Jesus talks about a field where there is both wheat and weeds. The farmer knows that he cannot uproot the weeds without killing the wheat, so he must wait. That teaches us that in this life, there is always going to be good and bad intermixed. It goes back to the idea of God inviting our participation in his will. The downside of that fact that he gives us free will is that some can choose not to cooperate with him. They have the power to reject. Although God has the power to destroy the weeds, he knows that it would destroy the dignity of his creation if he were just to uproot anything that went against his will. It wouldn't be loving. Instead, he uses these bad things in a way to accomplish his will in the end. We can see this in the life of the church throughout the centuries, as the faithful fought against the great heresies that infected Christianity. And while many of these heresies did great harm to the church at the time, the church always grew stronger in the long run, because the heresy spurred greater reflection and clarification of the truths of the faith. It continues today. There are many, for example, who push the idea of ordaining women to the priesthood. The church has been very clear that this is impossible, that it is totally contrary to God's will for the church, and it is not something that is open to change. 
And so, yes, while the argument over this question by those who continue to put it forward is kind of distracting and in some ways pointless, even from this, good has come. Because in raising the issue of why only men can be called to the priesthood, the church has spurred, been spurred to greater reflection about why this is the case. She has been forced to go deeper in her understanding of the theology of men and women and to understand more fully the connection between spiritual fatherhood and the priesthood. Jesus also tells us the parable of the mustard seed, which starts small but then becomes a large bush. Again, God has the power, if he wanted to use it, to simply accomplish what he wills by fiat. Yet God works in time beginning from the dawn of creation, preparing the world for Christ. And then after Christ accomplishes his work on the cross, he uses time to spread the message of Christ, often slowly, through the fits and starts of the church and through the missionary enterprise. By God diffusing his creative and redemptive work through time and space, this allows men and women the opportunity to participate in that process. And there is another practical message contained in the mustard seed. God starts small and grows things slowly over time. So we should be wary of the type of attitude we often see in political movements and revolutions that preach the idea of radical transformation, this leveling of what is so that something new and untried can be put in its place. Yes, the gospel message does contain within it a certain urgency of conversion, but it is an urgency that is at the same time wary of political and social extremism. It understands the limits of the human capacity for radical social change. It is why the church focuses instead on the small things, personal conversion, the good of marriage and family, right relations with one's neighbors. The message of God seems to be my kingdom will start small and grow steadily, being refined and purified along the way, not overextending itself. We're told, in effect, keep making first downs, don't go for the Hail Mary. Pardon the pun. This has been, by and large, the course of Christianity in history and the lived experience of most Christians. A slow and steady pace wins the race of salvation. Finally, we have the parable of the woman kneading the yeast into the flour. As the yeast is worked in, it leavens the bread. This tells us that the kingdom of God is not spread so much by confrontation and domination, but by interpenetration. We are told so often, love our enemies. Christians ought to be like that leaven, working our way into things, working our way amongst things raising up even those who do not know or those who reject the faith. This was the insight of the great missionaries. When they met a culture or a group that was non-Christian, they tried to relate the Christian faith to the things that the people already understood and practiced. They related the God of the Bible to whatever gods or spiritual practices the people already had, showing them that whatever fragment of the truth they already possessed could be raised to the dignity of the Christian life. In the same way, we are called upon to evangelize our culture 
by showing it that the goodness and the truth that it might already possess finds its fullness in Christ. God's will is most fulfilled when those in error and those who do evil are turned to good, not destroyed. Because unity and reconciliation highlights the essential love that radiates from the heart of the Trinity. We've heard a million times that God works in mysterious ways. And like an artist drawing a picture of the wind blowing through the trees, a precise understanding of his grace and the way it works in the world can only be suggested. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.